I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. How are you doing today? Not too bad, John. Um, it's finally rained here at Casa Noreen, so things are looking a little bit better. Um, it's still Texas. It's still hot. It's still summer. How about you? I'm okay. I am uh, excited, sad. I just had to buy a new car, which is very exciting, but very sad because I am poor now. But it's, uh, it's nice. It's definitely an upgrade going from a 2006 to I did go new and got a 2020, which is uh, even the base model has got a lot more on it than my old car. Oh, I'm absolutely sure. And to be fair, you're not poor. You're embracing your role as a musician in the 21st century. Right. I'm not poor. I'm in debt. There it is. So this week we're talking about Pippin. Pippin was written in 1972 with music and lyrics by Stephen Schwartz and a book by Roger Herson with additional uncredited material by Bob Fosse. Pippin opened on Broadway at the Imperial Theater in October of 1972, and it ran for 1,944 performances before closing in June of 1977. Pippin also got a revival in March of 2013, which played for 709 performances before closing in January of 2015. The show was directed and choreographed by Bob Fosse, with music direction by Stanley Lebowski. The original cast included Ben Vereen as the leading player, John Rubinstein as Pippin, Jill Clayburgh as Catherine, Eric Berry as Charlemagne, and Irene Ryan in her last role on Broadway as Bertha. Pippin was nominated for 11 Tony Awards, and it won five. Best Male Lead, Best Direction, Best Choreography, Scenic Design, and Lighting Design. Originally conceived as a one-act, Pippin is a show within a show featuring a nameless troupe of actors led by the leading player, and they are telling the story of Pippin, the son of Charlemagne, and his quest for meaning and purpose in life. While Pippin and Charlemagne are in fact real people, what follows is completely fictional. The story opens with Pippin, a new actor to the troupe, expressing his dreams to find his place in life, which the other actors of the troupe heartily applaud before sending him home to his father. At the urging of his stepmother, Fastrada, he joins his father's war council and is sent off to battle. Horrified by war, he runs away to Bertha, his exiled grandmother, who tells him to loosen up and not be so serious, which he takes as a direction to sample the carnal pleasures of life. However, he finds that encounters without attachment leave him empty and unfulfilled. At the leading player's urging, he then takes up the mantle of a crusader fighting tyranny. He chooses his father as his target at the urging of a less than honest Vistrata. Killing Charlemagne, Pippin becomes emperor. However, he quickly finds that ruling is difficult and unrewarding. He cannot make everyone happy and develops his own tyrannical tendencies before asking the leading player to bring his father back to life. After a minor scolding, Pippin tries to dive into art and religion before running away again in despair. At the end of his rope, Pippin meets Catherine, 
who was attracted to him because of the arch of his foot, and her son Theo and his pet duck. At first, Pippin resists working on her farm, seeing the duties as beneath him, but soon is entrenched in routine. At the urging of the leading player, who is growing increasingly upset that Catherine, the actor, is getting too close to Pippin, they urge Pippin to continue his quest, leaving a sad Catherine who has realized she has fallen for the man. At a loss for what to do next, the leading player tells Pippin there is only one option left, the grand finale, which is setting himself on fire, becoming (laughs) one with the flame. As he becomes more and more enamored with the idea, he is pulled back by the sight of Catherine the actor. Enraged that she is breaking the script, the leading player tells Pippin that he'll find no purpose with her. But Pippin realizes that the only time he was happy was with Catherine, and that a modest, ordinary life is sometimes okay. So the leading player ends the performance, sending off the other actors and orchestra, striking the sets in colorful lighting. The show ends with Pippin saying that he feels trapped, but happy, which isn't bad for the end of a musical comedy. Ta-da! In 1998, there was an alternate ending added for the show, which was included in the 2013 revival, where Pippin and Catherine walk off at the end of the show, leaving Theo, Catherine's son, alone on stage, singing a verse of Pippin's opening number, Corner of the Sky. He draws the attention of the troupe, implying that the cycle can start anew with Theo instead of Pippin. More recent productions, including the 2013 revival, have changed the show into a two-act performance, with the act break coming after Pippin kills his father and is crowned emperor. So this show, for me, really comes down to two words. Bob Fosse. Along with Chicago... I can't think of another show that's been so defined by the stylings and direction and choreography of one person. And Pippin is Bob Fosse. From the Brechtian influence of addressing the audience, their interactions with the audience as well as their interactions with each other, it defines this style. Very angular, very movement-oriented. It's a very physical style. And it, you know, at times I wonder, does Pippin work if it's not Bob Fosse? Is it a show that can be done without that that kind of setting? My heart wants to say yes, but I think it is really, really hard. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe the original production that uh, Fosse directed was conceived in a kind of minstrel presentation. And that stylizing of the, the minstrelsy no one is who they are in a minstrel show. And that's sort of integral to the storytelling of Pippin, you know, whether it's Pippin who doesn't really know who he is or the leading player who's, you know, just trying to put on a face to manipulate people in the way that he needs to accomplish what he wants. It, um, it adds a level to the storytelling that helps clearly articulate what is trying to be accomplished, but also really, really impacts the way in which you, have to tell the story. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things about that that really sticks out to me is it's done so successfully that while the show is representative of this Fosse style, it's representative of the 70s and the musical scene in the 70s with its, you know, its rock guitar and its its kind of its funk and jazz influences, it's not dated. 
you can put the cast album for Pippin on now and it's just as enjoyable as it would have been 40 years ago. It's one of the things that I, I think is one of the major successes of the show. It's not dated. Its story is still valid, is still relevant, but its presentation is also still valid and relevant. Things I appreciated about the revival is while some of the concept was changed, the setting was changed, a lot of the style of the music was still in this 70s vernacular. It still sounds like Pippin sounded 40 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you know, you, you've said it, it doesn't sound dated. It does sound like the 70s, but there's there's something about the writing that still makes that vital and valid and great today. I think one of the things I find really appealing about the show is the flexibility of the cast, in particular the leading player, you know, originally played by Ben Vereen, but in the 2013 revival, they cast Patina Miller and it still totally works. And I think that's really, really awesome that we can be successfully, you know, changing the genders of these roles and it doesn't impact the show in any negative way and actually creates uh, a really awesome kind of twist to see a female character in that light just sort of serving their own motives is, is really cool. Well, and one of the things that I loved about it was it showed that the leading player is about personality. Ben Vereen was a character and he was one of those people that could convince you of anything when he was acting. Patina Miller brought that exact same vibe, but in her own way, equally as valid. And in some, in some cases, I felt exceeded Ben Vereen's performance. For me, it's the, the ultimate experience of best for the role in the moment. And it showed that, that gender isn't valid. It's not a valid excuse. It's not a valid argument. When it comes to roles like this, where, where it's about character and drive and motivation, she was just as brilliant in the role as Ben Vereen was. Yeah, I was able to see the uh, 2013 revival on Broadway and she was just absolutely magnetic every time she was on stage. Another thing that I really like about this show is some of the clever lyrics that Stephen Schwartz provides us with, in particular, almost in a Gilbert and Sullivan style. Two songs stand out to me in this regard, War is a Science and No Time at All. These are both kind of tropey songs. You know, Gilbert and Sullivan had the stock troupe that they were working with that had their character types and they would write songs for them. And you almost see that in War is a Science. You can kind of picture doddering older man character doing his patter song. And it, it really just, to me, harkens back to that in a delightful way. And it's not even the only song in the show that's like that. For example, No Time at All, which is sung by uh, Bertha, the grandmother, which is funny because it, the song is set up in this Gilbert and Sullivan vernacular where it's written in a stylistic way. In the same way that War is a Science is written for the patter character, no Time at All is written for that frumpy older lady character that we see, whether it's the Ruth or the Buttercup character. It's just another side of that style of writing. But it still f has this feeling of being carefree and, and open and inviting. Absolutely. No Time at All, it, it's, it's kind of funny because No Time at All almost strikes me as a schoolhouse rock style song where it's open and friendly and inviting. It's actually one of the, the most sincere songs of the show to me. And it's the most fun. I mean, at one point, Bertha invites 
the audience to sing along with her on the final verse. I remember growing up and there was the the truncated film version of Pippin. And I remember them lowering screens during this song so that they could show the lyrics to the audience so they could they could jump in. And it's very it's a very open feel. It's a very trope feel, but it's something that just adds to the top charm of the show. It's interesting that you bring up schoolhouse rock because I think, you know, schoolhouse rock is something also totally of that era, but that still is very appealing today and still very valid today. It's of note to point out that the original production of Pippin was partially sponsored by Motown Records. And we've talked about that kind of 70s sound. And I think, you know, that really comes through in the score. And I want to say that uh, a part of that is the influence of Motown Records on this show. I mean, there are even playouts at times. You know, it sounds like album songs that's not necessarily musical theater big finish here's your button and applause the songs just sort of fade to the end and i think that's unusual and interesting to see in the song but also actually done really effectively in the theater in terms of creating dramatic transitions one of the striking things for me is the differences between the original and the revival i can't think of another show that has undergone substantive changes whether it was from a one act to a two act with the, with the original 1972 being a one act 2013 being a a two act show, but there's also a change of the ending in the original, as we talked about in the synopsis, the original 1972 show ended with Catherine, Theo and Pippin standing on stage in their underclothes, basically saying, well, that's the end. Ha, and that was it. The the leading players struck the orchestra, struck the set, struck the light, struck the other actors. They're literally standing on a bare stage at the end. It's sim- it's, it's a similar presentation in in the revival. However, with Catherine and Pippin moving off, leaving Theo alone, and then this little presentation of Corner of the Sky that he's almost singing absentmindedly to himself. And then just this, it, it's a very ominous setup of then all of a sudden the troop reappears and the leading player reappears as they start to come down on Theo. It, it almost turns this concept into the, a, a Faustian ideal that this story always is going on. And it almost doesn't matter who it surrounds. I mean, they make a big deal in the opening of the show of Pippin being a new actor to the troupe. Well, what happened to the old actor? Did he have a similar realization as Pippin? What did he burn himself alive as part of the grand finale? These things are hinted at in the original, but we're kind of lampshading it in the revival. I don't know if it's better or worse. I think it's just different. It is different. I mean, I have to say, purely from a dramatic point, if I was directing this, I would want to do the second ending, the the revival ending, because it's very easy in my mind how you would do it and how you would make it successful and how you would make it clear what you were communicating to the audience. The original ending, I think, is totally valid, but a much tougher dramatic sell because of the sparseness of the material that's left and the message you're sending that like, all right, 
this is it. That's the end. That's tricky to do successfully. And I want to take the easy path. But they're both, I think, still totally valid. Ultimately, they both work. One is a little bit more sinister than the other. Maybe that's why I like the revival ending. I do sort of love that image of everyone creeping up on this small child and going, ah, we've got you now. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you haven't heard Pippin, go check it out. You can find both the original and the revival cast albums anywhere you can find recordings, including Spotify. Our intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on audionautics.com. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.